Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, they they uh, started this uh, new feature in the sort of the, the local Jewish uh, newspaper out here uh, in the Jewish Journal called uh, uh, Table of Five. And what, what, what the idea is that they take um, a, a couple of verses from, from that week's uh, Torah portion and they invite, I guess, five people from across the, the Jewish spectrum to... Um, Write 250 words on that on that verse, and they're within the couple of verses that they select. There are enough different ideas, or sometimes people zero in on the same idea, whatever it is. But the idea is to sort of like um, uh, happen onto a conversation about the parsha, where it's almost like you're sitting at a say a Shabbos table or something like that, and different people are giving different perspectives, and that's that's what they're trying to sort of capture. And so I've been invited to kind of participate in that. And I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to read one that, that will be in an upcoming, uh, in a couple of weeks, because I don't know that I'm going to be able to say it better than I wrote it, and it's only 250 words, so it'll okay. go by in about 60 seconds. So anyway, it was, um, the, the, the verses that they had selected for that week concern the, the menorah. And the and the the oil of the menorah, the light of the menorah. So so this is what I wrote. If you think about it, it's kind of funny that God commands us to light the menorah in the holy temple. Why? Because God doesn't need that light in order to see. So then why light it at all? To answer that, we have to go back before the world was created. Most people think that the world started with darkness, and then God said, Let there be light. Nothing could be further from the truth. God existed before the world did, and one of the names of God in Kabbalistic texts is Orain Sof, or light without end. In other words, the starting point of the world is tremendous light, not darkness at all. The light of the menorah was so holy. The Kutzkarebi teaches that it channeled that original light of creation back into the world, which brings us back to our question, who was the light for? Us. This explains the windows in the Holy Temple. Normally, windows are meant to bring in as much light as possible. And yet the windows in the Holy Temple were funnel-shaped, large on the outside, but small on the inside. The rabbis teach that this was for the light of the menorah to shine out to the entire world. As a light unto the nations, we have a responsibility to shine this teaching that the beginning of everything is not darkness, but light, hope, and and the goodness of God. Amen. So, so, so there's a lot there. There was a lot that got sort of like squeezed into 250 words there. And I just want to tell you, let me just open by telling you that that, that opening idea, who is the light for, in terms of being commanded to light the menorah in the holy temple, that's not my question. That's the, that's the question of the Medrash. If you think of it, it's a very striking question that, you know, we just... Assume that God is telling us, light the menorah, okay, fine, but, but the, the rabbis and their, their brilliance sort of like think it through a little bit more and they say, well, wait a second, who, who, who needs that light? God doesn't need that light, right? So, so we're suggesting that, okay, so that we need that light, but, but what do we need that light, that particular light for? So it, it's my answer here, but, but what I'm suggesting is that we need that light in order to connect us to the fact that the world didn't start with darkness, but that the world started with light. And since the light of the menorah 
channeled that original light of creation, when we look at the light of the menorah, according to this way of thinking, we're supposed to think about the original light of creation and the fact that the world started with light and not with darkness. And so that then becomes the role of the... And then, of course, the... I don't know if you caught it. It, it was... I had to condense something that required perhaps more explanation than, than I put in there. But the, the, the windows in the, in the holy temple were, the, were like funnel-shaped. They were large on the outside of the building and small on the inside of the building. So that, that's the idea being that the whole point of the light of the holy temple was to broadcast light outside to the world, not to take in the outside light to light up the building. In other words, there was no shortage of light in the holy temple. The holy temple was the source of light. And then we have to get that light out to the world. So, so working with this idea still, what light are we getting out to the world? The light that the world started with light and not with darkness. So, so I'm bringing this up right now for today because I think that it's worth thinking about. And I, I think that this is, you know, we, we call this series of talks spiritual tools for an outrageous world. That the hope is, is that while we're talking about some things that might get to be very kind of um, esoteric and things like that, at the same time, we're all always trying to have something to hold on to, something practical that we can apply to our lives. So the, the practical question here, in terms of how we lead our lives, is what, here's a question that we can ask ourselves, what do you consider the starting point of your life? You see, because whatever answer you give to that question is going to say a lot about you and a lot about your approach to life. So, for instance, if, if the starting point, uh, I'll throw out some options. Is the starting point of your life your first memory? I think for most people, it probably would be. Um, for a lot of people, the starting point of their life is their first trauma, which is very interesting. You know, who are you? I'm the one who went through this, right? And that's, that's, um, that's, that, that's heavy because, because if you think about it, what, whatever your starting point of your, of your consciousness, of your awareness about yourself, is going to be that which you base the rest of your experience of your life on. Because that's your foundation stone. So, you know, my, my father, Oliver Shalom, who I've mentioned many times, was a, was a psychologist. He, he treated patients for 50 years. He told me something that, that always was very painful to me, more painful to other people, I'm sure, which is that children of divorce... Um, he said from a psychological standpoint, children of divorce always blame themselves for their parents' divorce. Um, so, in other words, and there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a reason for that, by the way. And, and children blame themselves for all sorts of things. Sometimes if they're abused um, in different horrible ways, they, they also blame themselves. Why? So I heard this explanation one time, and I thought it was, it was very, very interesting. Very sad, but, but, but it, it, it sounded true to me. Which was that a child would rather 
live in a world where there's a sense of um, logic and cause and effect than in a completely random, uncontrolled world. So if they have to blame themselves for something that they're not guilty of, but by doing so get the added benefit of asserting control over the narrative, then that's preferable to living in a world of total randomness. So, so if you think about it, it's, um, you know, the, the, the mind is so resourceful, the emotions are so resourceful, that it's, maybe it's a good deal in the end. Because maybe, maybe the horrors of living in what, what is perceived to be a universe where there's just absolutely no logic at all is, is, is way worse than living in a universe where you blame yourself for something you're not guilty of, but at least you know the source of why something went wrong. Or at least you've projected a model that you can work within. But again, the question is, what is your starting point of your own life? So a lot of people, you know, divorce is so rampant today, a lot of people, their, their earliest thing is like, oh, it began with that divorce, which began with my with something that I did, or whatever, whatever it is. So, so what, what I would like to suggest is a, a whole different model, a different tool, a different way of approaching one's life, because a person doesn't necessarily have to begin the story of their life with, with their own birth or with their own earliest memory. Right? A person could begin their life by saying, well, if you, if you think of yourself, for instance, if you think of yourself as a Jew, you might say, well, um, what is the starting point for me? Abraham and Sarah. You could say that, right? Or you could say, what is the, what is the starting point for me? What, when did the world begin? See, it's a big question. It would be make an, an interesting poll if you asked like a thousand people or a million people or something like that. When did you begin? I think most people would say their birthdays, right? Or would you say when, the, when, when God created the world? <laughs> right? How, how big is your perspective? How, 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 how broad is your sense of what it is that you're participating in? In other words, are you, the, are you the beginning and the end point of reality? Or are you participating, are you a participant in this grand project called the world? It's, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's worthy of, of, of considering because what I would like to suggest is, and, and that's why I wanted to read that piece to you at the, at the beginning, is that if you think of the world as the starting point for everything, the light of creation before the world was even created, think about how positive a thought that is. First of all, you're understanding that the world started from a standpoint of light, not darkness. Second, you're thinking of this thing that you're involved with, meaning your life, this world, everything like that, as so much bigger than your own collective problems, right? You're in the middle of this giant project, right? See, one of, the, one of the definitions of simcha, of happiness, and one of the reasons why um, 
you know, especially the Hasidic movement has put so much emphasis on, on Simcha. And, and, and one of the unfortunate um, aspects of how, how much it's misunderstood by people who don't understand this emphasis on Simcha is they think it's sort of like, um, oh, be happy, it's so nice to be happy, everyone should smile, let's all smile together. Like, they don't understand what, what Simcha is. You know, first of all, Simcha has letters of Mashiach in it, by the way. You know, the idea of Simcha is expanded consciousness. This, this is the idea. In other words, when someone is happy, and by the way, I don't know if you just saw this headline. This has been true at Harvard for a number of years now, but they just um, published this stat, I think, two days ago, that now the number one course at Yale is a course on happiness. So it's something like there are 1,200 kids that signed up for this lecture class. In other words, as, as Western society gets more and more advanced and, and wealthier and wealthier, people have finally reached the conclusion that there is not this iron-clad correlation between money and happiness. And so people have reached this conclusion that if you can be rich and miserable, <laughs> then what do I have to spend my life being miserable for to be rich and miserable? Right? Maybe, I, maybe there's a shortcut to what I actually want, which is to be happy. Okay, how, how do I be happy? So believe it or not, this is now a, a, it's a new field, new-ish field in psychology. It's called positive psychology, and it's the scientific study of happiness. And there are many, many books on it, by the way. Tons of studies, just like the science of happiness, basically. That, that's what it is. Okay, so <coughs> what, is, what is so great from the Torah perspective about it is that happiness, or let's call it simcha, right? Simcha allows you to see, like I say, it's, 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 it's mind expansion. It allows you to see the big picture. What, what that means to say is it takes your perspective away from just focusing on yourself. And if you can broaden your landscape and broaden your thinking, like for instance, which is what we're talking about today, which is what is the starting, what is your starting point for your own life? Right? What is your starting point for your own life? If you can broaden it and expand it, so that it goes back, not from your birth or from an earliest trauma, but to the beginning of the world, which starts with light and not darkness, right? You realize that this, this construct that I'm living within, it's a very positive, positive thing. There's not just this iron weight on my shoulders, right? Whole another way to go through life. So... So, you know, Rabbi, Rabbi Freeman was saying something that, that, that works along with, it, with these ideas, and, and, and I was very struck by it. He said, what, how, what do you think this world is to God? Right? And he gave two choices, and they're, they're very, very different ideas. He said, is this world an idea of God's, or is this world... A desire of God's. And, and the way he sort of like delineated the two ideas was, if this world is an idea of God's, 
That, he said, is a very cold construct. It's like that this world then is basically made out of certain geometries, right? That's, that's this world being an idea of God. If this world is a desire of God, then there's this sort of like sense of ongoing relationship between God and all of the events of this world. Because God is desiring it. Do, do you see? Very, very interesting way of, 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 of thinking about it. And, 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 and you know, Reb Shlomo once said this, and I think it works nicely with, 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 that, with, with that idea. One of, one of my all-time favorite ideas, actually. Um, Reb Shlomo was talking about um, the, the, the giving of the land of, of Israel to the Jewish people. But you can apply this idea in many ways, because it's really, it's really brilliant. So, so he says, imagine uh, a man marries a woman, he gives her a wedding ring, right? And one day he comes to the house, he sees the wife isn't wearing the wedding ring. And he says to her, where's the wedding ring? And she says, well, you gave it to me, it's mine, I can do anything I want with it, I gave it to someone else. So, if you think about it, <laughs> it's sort of like, logically, it kind of makes sense. You know what I mean? There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong, really, with the steps of, of what the person said there. However, intuitively, you understand, like, that's completely wrong. That's completely wrong. But kind of makes sense, though. So, so, so what is, what, why is it wrong? What, what, is the, what is the disconnect? So what Rabbi Shlomo said was that there are certain gifts that even though they were given at a certain point in time, they, they, you never stop giving them. Right? Even though like you can mark on a calendar the day that that transaction was made, the ring was given, Nonetheless, the nature of that ring, and I suppose it's one of the levels of a ring being a circle, right? The nature of that type of gift is that it's an ongoing gift and it never stops being given, right? So, so the idea is that you, you, don't, you don't possess it so much as you continue to receive it, right? This is, I think... Um, you know, even though, like I said, Reb Shlomo gave this example in terms of giving the land of Israel to the Jewish people, that it's something that we're constantly receiving. And I think the point that he was making was, like, it's not really ours to give, a, to give away once we've received it. I think, that's, I think that's the point that he was making. But nonetheless, this, this idea can be um, expanded, and, and I, I often use it to illustrate the giving of the Torah. Because the Torah is something that never stops being given and also never stops being received, right? But now we're applying it in, a, in another way. We're applying it to the ideas, is what is this world in God's mind? Is this world an idea, or is this world a desire? If this world is a desire, then God never stops desiring it, which means that the world never stops being given to us, that that relationship is always new, and always, like, active, right? You see, you know, there's, there's that joke, I think I just mentioned it the other day. It's, 
it's like one of these heartbreaking jokes because you just you, you feel the truth of it and it just I don't know I think everyone can identify with it the story of the person who's driving and he's got an important business meeting in New York City right and it's like he's got to find a parking spot if you've ever tried to park in Manhattan you know how difficult it can be He's got to find a parking spot. This meeting is very, very important. He starts promising God all sorts of things. I'll keep Shabbos. I'll keep kosher. I'll do this. I'll do that. God, please send me a park. No. I see one just opened up. Never mind. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is us. This, this is us. And it's, it's this... It's, this is really, really one of the great challenges, which is to be in this ongoing relationship, but then to stay in the relationship, right? But to be able to stay in that relationship, there's a very critical element. You see, you know what? You know what the disconnect for that person in the car who found the parking spot was? You ready for this? You know what the disconnect was? He wasn't able to receive. See, there's so, many, there's so many checkpoints. If you want to be in a healthy, balanced, satisfying relationship with God, there's so many different checkpoints. Like you think, okay, I believe in God, and I know God can do absolutely everything. So what more? That's, that's, to me, that's the sign of a healthy relationship. What more do I need? But that person had those, that element. He believed in God. He says God controls everything. That's why I'm praying to him. I'm speaking to him. I'm in an active conversation with him. I know that he controls everything, including parking spaces. That sounds like a pretty religious personality, right? And yet, as soon as the parking space opened up, he said, never mind, God, I found a spot. Why? Because that person doesn't have a checkpoint next to one of the crucial items that if you want to be in a healthy relationship with God, you need, which is the ability to receive from God. Right? I'll tell you something. There's a, I'm involved in this production, and it's all a long story. It's not so interesting. The, the bottom line is, is that um, I, I just had one of these moments last week where basically there's this very emotional scene, and we've been kind of building to this particular scene all season long. And and there was a bit of music that, that had been part of that scene from, from, from day one. And um, we just assumed that we wouldn't be able to license that song and everything like that. But our composer, like, did another song, but whatever it was, because everyone had associated that original song with that a very emotional thing, you know, they call that in the industry fall, you, falling in love with the demo, right? So you, you just... Whatever was written, no matter how good, it wasn't that original song because that's the thing that you associated with, with, with the with the sequence. So finally, they said, "You know something? Let's just try to buy the song," which is something that they haven't said at all. Now, some of these songs, if you try to buy them, like from a famous group, this was from a very obscure group, extremely obscure. No one's ever heard of this group. <laughs> I. It reminded of the name of this group, and then immediately forget the name of this group. It's like it's very, very obscure. 
but but these these like for instance like for like ACDC something like that like one of these like you know like iconic groups like just for like a small snippet it costs something like eighty thousand dollars right it's like really expensive and you know our production is not a rich production we haven't got something like that but but a, but so I'm thinking okay oh, it would be so good to get this song. It would just like, that's just this thing we've been building to and everything like that. The, the network wants to buy the song, but if it's too expensive, it's, they're not going to buy it. So I, I prayed. I prayed a number of prayers. I really prayed a number of prayers. And I said, you know, God, please, may it not be too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, meanwhile, I was rooting for this, like, obscure artist that they should get this surprise call out of the blue and, you know, you know, be like a surprise little windfall for them, you know. You know, so I, I was balancing all these things and I really, I, I prayed. And then, like, like, first thing the next morning, we, they, the number came in. I don't want to say the number, but it was, it was, it was, it was half of what we thought the low number would be. So it was like, it was really affordable. The network immediately snapped it up. It was done. And, and then, and then I was sort of befuddled, right? I'm the guy looking for the parking spot, right? I was befuddled. I was like, God, you really, you really wanted that song at the end of episode six? Like, you're really that involved in my life that you were like, okay, we're going to get the song. Dave, we're going to get the song. And it was hard for me to grasp, you know, even though I talk about these things all the time, but, you know, you can't just talk about them. You have to actually live them, and you have to integrate them, you, and then that takes work. It was, it was, I was dumbfounded. I was like, God, do you really, like, love me so much? But this is true for all of us, that God's love for all of us, you know what I mean? But uh, I was just trying to make it real that, that, that you did this? I, I guess so. But it was really, it was really hard to receive. It was hard to receive. Um, by the way, you know, it talks about, the sources say that, um, that uh, when Hashem created Adam, right? Now you have to, you have to picture this. You have the Garden of Eden, Okay, and then you have the dirt that Hashem um, molded into Adam's body, and then God blows a soul into Adam. Right, that's the account of creation. So, according to one account, God took dirt from the four corners of the world in order to create Adam. So He took He exp- He took that dirt from outside of the Garden of Eden and brought it into the Garden of Eden. According to another account, God scooped from the Harabayas, from where the Beis Amigdash is, from where, where the Mizbeach is, the, the holy altar. He took dirt from there, and that's what he made Adam out of. In both instances, in both instances, God took dirt from outside the Garden of Eden. Now, by the way, I just, I'm, I'm on my way to make another point, but I want to pause to make this point, which is a thought that I had many years ago that I, that I always thought was special which is that, you know, the Garden of Eden was paradise, is paradise, right? Outside the Garden of Eden is exile, right? How do you, in modern science today, 
when you give someone a vaccine, how do you give the, how, what, what, is the, what is the science of vaccines? You take a little bit of the uh, sickness, right? Let's say if, like a flu vaccine or something like that. You take a little of the flu and you inject it into the person, just a tiny bit. And so the antibodies of the person are, are able to learn how to defeat that bug. And then if the real flu comes, or a, a, some malady, God forbid, comes, the body is educated into how to defeat it, and then it can defeat it right away. Right? So I thought it was interesting that God took like this area from outside the Garden of Eden. God took exile, and he, and he inoculated us against exile. Do you understand? He sort of, so to speak, made us out of exile so that we would be able to understand and defeat exile before we ever entered into exile. We would understand exile and be able to combat it. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why we're still around till today. Okay? But the rabbis teach that it says that God took Adam to the Garden of Eden. What does it mean that he took Adam to the Garden of Eden? that God had to use persuasive words, that God had to actually convince Adam to go into the Garden of Eden. And so, on the one level, you could say, okay, well, Adam knew what was coming. I would also have to be convinced. (laughs) You could argue that side. Or you could argue the exact opposite side of saying, God wants to give Adam the Garden of Eden, paradise, and he's got to convince him for that? Like, obviously, we seem to be born with this inability to know how to receive. Here, God is giving us the greatest present in the entire world, paradise. And he has to convince us to take paradise. You know, I remember one of the, one of my earliest memories of my, my, my first son was, like, you know, like with kids... <coughs> You, you introduce new, new foods like one at a time because in case there's an allergy, you're able to go, okay, he's allergic to squash or something like that. And you've isolated it, so you know. So you, you, you introduce them slowly. So there came a point where it was sort of like, okay, he's ready for ice cream. <laughs> and for me, this was like, a, you know, who doesn't love ice cream, right? Like, this was a big day. Like, this, he's going to get his first ice cream. So I remember I had a little spoon of chocolate ice cream, and I put it in his face, and, and my eldest, Moshe, looks at it and is like, no way. I don't want that. <laughs> and I, I remember saying to him, it's chocolate ice cream. Like, you are going to love this. Like, you don't even know what I'm trying to give you. And he was like adamant, like he doesn't want it. And I remember jamming the spoon in his mouth. And he was like, oh, all right. You know, it's like, okay, it's good. But, you know, that's, that's us and God a lot of the times, you know. I mean, the mitzvahs in general. The mitzvahs in general. I mean, the mitzvahs are infinite. They're giving us infinite life, eternal life. And it's like, no, I don't want that one, I don't want that one. Right? So, so yeah, being able to know how to receive. And you see, you know, I remember Reb Shlomo said something. Again, we're, we're, we're still on the same topic. Is this, what is this world to God? Is it, an, is it an idea or is it a desire? And if it's a desire, then like the... Then like the giving of the ring, it's being given on, a, on an ongoing basis. 
But, but in order to give something on, on an ongoing basis, it ha- we have to be able to receive on an ongoing basis. And I think it's worthwhile, you know, we're asking a few questions here. What's your starting point? What is the starting point of your life in terms of your consciousness, right? Is it your birth? Is it the beginning of the world, right? Is it the light at the beginning of the world? So also, are you able to receive? I think every person has to ask themselves, are you able to receive? Are you, are you receiving right now this new day that's, that's, that's coming? Or is, and you have to be honest with yourself, or is our kind of view of our own life, this is my life, I'm being given a certain number of days, this is another one of the days that I'm being given, okay, God, when are we going to get to the stuff that I actually want? Right? Then, then, then we can start talking. Right? Like, it's... Because if we're, if we're really open, if we really have expanded consciousness, which again comes from simcha, which again comes from happiness, then it's like, wow, I'm getting this, I'm getting that, I'm getting this, I'm getting that, I'm getting stuff all the time. Actually, I'm getting stuff all of the time. And, and, you know, it's just strange. You wouldn't think that it takes a great person to be able to receive. You know? You, you would think that receiving is probably the easiest thing in the world to do. But... See, the problem is, is that we think that it's already mine. If I think that it's mine, you know, can you imagine like, like someone comes into your house and says, I have a present, and then you open up the wrapping paper, and what did they do? They took something off your shelf. <laughs> they wrapped it up and they gave it to you. You're like, what are you, a joker? This is, this is mine. Right? You see, if you feel as though what you're being given is already yours, already belongs to you, then you don't... But nothing belongs to us. Nothing belongs to us. If we're already possessing it, then that's one of the blocks on our heart which stops us from being able to receive. Because we already think it's ours. So what are you giving me, God? You're giving me something that already belongs to me. So that's 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 another thing that's worth that's worth considering. Um, so 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 this other idea is 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 related. So Reb Shlomo asks this question. Which is, do you believe that God is in an ongoing conversation with the world? Do you believe God is in an ongoing conversation with the world? See, this is really a make-or-break question in terms of how you view your life, how you view your soul. See, because if there's this ongoing conversation, then that's God's desire for the world. And this world is a desire.
then you can receive because you're actually in the middle of a conversation. Right? And it's just, it's just perspective. It just all boils down to perspective. And I'll just wrap it up by telling you this uh, story. Um, I heard it in the name of Rabbi Biederman. I heard it at a, at a, at a levaya, at a funeral. The, the person was illustrating the, the person who had passed away, how great the person who had passed away was, that they had this attribute, which is illustrated in this story. Um, so, so it's told as a true story, and I think it, it, it sums up all the things we've been talking about today. So I guess not too long ago in Israel, um, there were people waiting for the, the very last bus of the night to take them to, to, to their home. And, you know, there was a crowd of people. It was like 11.30 at night or whatever it was, something like this. It was late. And the bus isn't coming. And they're thinking, what, what, what's going to be? You know, we're, we're like stranded. We, 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 we have to get home. The bus is supposed to come. There's no bus. What's, what's happening? And so a, a, a period of time goes by, I don't know how long it was, half an hour, 45 minutes, something like this, but, you know, reason to start to despair and to worry and to everything like that. All of a sudden, a bus with a different set of numbers starts roaring by them, and, you know, they, someone waves down the bus, or a couple of people wave down the bus, and the bus stops, and they say, please, we're stranded here, the bus was supposed to come, it didn't come, and can you... Can you take us? And the guy says, absolutely not. I'm going to lose my job. No, I can't do it. And they say, please, we're stranded. Come on. So the guy goes, get on the bus. Good, come on. So everyone gets on the bus. He drives them to where they needed to go, like, like, like the previous bus would have done. And um, they effusively thank him at the end. You're so nice and kind. And Shem should bless you, all the rest. And he says, listen, I have a confession. I'm really your bus driver. <laughs> he says, I parked and I fell asleep by the side of the road. <laughs> and I thought, what am I going to do? If I show up a half an hour, 45 minutes late, you're going to scream at me and yell at me, right? So I changed the numbers in the front of the bus and, you know, made it seem like I was doing you a favor. Now, now that's the end of the story. Now, here's what Rabbi Biederman said, something just brilliant. He said, look at this. Same group of people, same bus, same arrival time, same bus driver, and yet in one instance, people would have been livid and enraged, and in another instance, the exact same set of data points, they were overwhelmingly grateful. So, you see the power of your own mind. You see the power of how you choose to go through life. And believe me, it's a choice. It's a choice. You know, every once in a while, if you think about these things enough, you get like a, a bonus present, right? So, I think I've mentioned to you in the past, sometimes when I see people doing something that I really find like, really like, distasteful, and to this day, I hear a voice in my head that says, you do the same thing. 
And my first reaction is always, I don't even have to think that. It just comes automatically. You do the same thing. And then my first reaction is, no, I don't. I absolutely don't. And I have to tell you something, 100% of the time, if I think about it, I've done the same thing. 100% of the time. Right? So that's number one. But another thing is, is that a lot of times when someone starts to go into a bad mood, and you can feel yourself going into a bad mood, on some level, okay, I know there are a lot of factors here, but on some level, the person is choosing to either allow themselves to go into a bad mood or choosing to go into a bad mood at that point. And if you can sensitize yourself to that moment and go, you know what, I don't want to play that game with myself. I I don't want to go into a bad mood. I, I choose not to. In other words, to become conscious of the fact that free choice is being exercised in that moment. Right? Because who doesn't want to be the person who sees that bus and goes, thank you, God, as opposed to shaking your fist in rage? Who, do, who doesn't want to be that person? You know, I've shared with you before that our prayers are constantly being answered. We're just not praying them. For instance, I leave my house in the morning. There's my car. My prayer that my car should not be stolen overnight was answered. I just didn't pray that prayer. <laughs> right? I hit the start button, the engine starts, my prayer was just answered. The only thing is, I didn't pray, may my car not be broken this morning. Right? And you can, you can apply this beyond, to almost to absurd points, that, you know, that the sidewalk remains smooth, that it doesn't disappear, that gravity continues, you know, that I don't just float up into outer space. I mean, there's that we go into the supermarket, and of course the supermarket has your items. Who, who, who says the supermarket should have any of your items? Our prayers are constantly being answered. But it's just, we have to actively shape our consciousness in order to be able to receive what we're being given all the time. So, so, so that's my, that's my, 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 my blessing for all of us, for, for me as well, is that we should be able to receive God's love because that, that's, that's the disconnect. You can be aware of God. Please, God, send me a parking space. You can know that God is the one who controls everything, including who's parking and where. And yet you get it. Oh, God, never mind. I found this spot. But unless we have the ability to receive, we can't consummate that relationship with God. Right? Because can you imagine it's sort of like you got all the way. You got, you got the wedding date. You, you, you found the partner, but you didn't. You didn't walk to the chuppah. You turned away. You said, okay, whatever. Right? That, that, that consummation point is the ability to receive. So, so, remember, nothing belongs to us. Nothing belongs to us. You know, we should all be blessed and protected, but nothing belongs to us. And if, you, if a person understands that in a positive way, not in a, de- in a depressing way, but in a positive way, then, then they're constantly receiving. 
Now for some questions and answers. So, um, one of my two points. Yeah, sure. I can't. I, yesterday you made a beautiful point about the yeah. first words about Pharaoh. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that ties right. into this very much. So, okay, so maybe I'll, I'll share that. So I heard from Reb Shlomo. I believe it was in the name of the Rishner Rebbe that um, the first uh, the first word of Parshas B'Shalach is Vayihi. And this is actually, seems very strange. Those of you who know it, it says in the Gemara and Megillah that any time a verse begins with the word Vayihi, it says, it says something negative is happening. So this, this is very strange because what is, what is that verse saying? That verse is saying we finally got out of Egypt. I mean, this is what we've been building up to. And it's like, there it is. There's the, there's the verse. We're, we're, we're out of Egypt. How can it be starting with the word Vayihi? So... So listen to this. I'll, I'll, I'll read you that, uh, that verse in English. It says, It happened when Pharaoh sent out the people. The Vayihi is at the beginning of that. It happened when Pharaoh sent out the people. So I believe it was the original Rebbe said, You know why it says Vayihi? Because we thought Pharaoh was the one who was taking us out of Egypt, not God. So again, there's a, another example, thank you, of of needing to learn how to receive, right? And so, anyway, did, did, was and there... The second yeah. one 